Chapter 3 Virtue A topic the author knows very little about, this chapter therefore being relatively short. The word virtue is all through the Bible. As a kid, I was pretty used to seeing it. I thought I knew what it meant, too. In particular, I knew there was a virtuous woman or wife who is described in detail by the mother writing the last bit of Proverbs for her son. And in one story, we read that Jesus felt virtue go out of him. Growing up, I always understood the word virtue to mean purity, the state of being virginal, clean, free from corruption, untouched by filthy, sinful crap. That's what it sounded like to me back in the day when it was preached on, and it wasn't, of course, preached on nearly as much as sin, death, hell, the old nature, and the devil were, but sometimes it was preached on. And it was always presented in that way, as the absence of bad stuff. I think that was missing the point. When looking into the Bible a bit more closely, one has to notice that the word virtue is used to mean merit, excellence, worth, power, that which works and is of benefit. Power? Now that's a very different thought than pure and free from bad stuff. Virtue refers to having value that isn't merely the absence of bad. It's the presence of good. And good isn't just unbad. God isn't just unsatan. Christ wasn't just unsinful. I think I grew up with such a focus on sin, and wrath, and evil, and the devil, and hell, that the ideas of good, or acceptance, or heaven, almost completely failed to ingrain themselves the way all the shame did. I wasn't raised to understand much about virtue, about inherent worth, or about what is effective. It was all about what is merely well-intentioned and has all the I's dotted and T's crossed by decorating one's intentions and claims with scripture scraps and making sure it all looks shiny and Christian. I don't really know much about virtue still. As a teen, I always pictured God to be someone who either judged you or didn't. He wasn't someone who approved. He loved in the sense of not smiting us. Grace was not destroying us. Mercy, too. His love, the greatest love of all, was seen in him not judging us. When it comes down to that, why does judging always mean judging to be crappy or guilty of something, and never includes the connotation of judging to be innocent, or the judges made their decision and awarded my rhubarb pie the blue ribbon, judging it to be the best pie of all? That's pretty messed up, actually. Real judges sometimes say not guilty, don't they? And award blue ribbons for first prize? and judge something to be worth $5 million? If I made a really good rhubarb pie, would God be the only one who didn't notice that it was good? Really? Jake says, I'm 50 times more likely to believe it's God's voice correcting me or telling me I'm wrong, speaking harshly or condemning, than I am a soft voice of encouragement and love. A God that actually tells his sons that he is proud of them and that he loves them who is pleased to talk about movies and video games and things we find joy and rest in. A voice that actually says, good job. It's almost hard for me to believe that when I hear it. It's so contrary to what I'm conditioned to. I was paid $20 to read the King James Bible when I was 12. The interesting thing looking back is that it wasn't the money I was really doing it for, although that was nice. And my motive certainly wasn't what it should have been, that the Bible was good, that it had virtue or merit or excellence, and that I was going to explore it because of that inherent worth. No, that wasn't why I was really doing it either. I was doing it so as to be able to tell people I've been able to do it, 
at age 12, in the 17th century King James translation, the whole thing. Bragging rights were a big part of why I did it. They got me through more begats and cubits in a span and ephahs of fine flour than the twenty dollars, or even the spiritual ancient mystery of it all did. And I suppose I had my reward. When my father helped out with the Bible discussion at meeting, I remember how he sweated through bits of those hundred-year-old books of Brethren Doctrine as best he could. John Nelson Darby's interminable sentences, all strung together with commas and semicolons, were a particular problem for him to read nowadays. That style of writing, fashionable and reputable as it was in the Victorian era, has come to be seen very differently indeed, and is now actually simply considered bad writing. It is, in fact, it must be admitted, all things considered, though there are some adherents to the style, what we must now call a run-on sentence, when employed even with the best of intentions, though back in the day it was felt by most that having trouble parsing said interminable sentences really meant that one was, it was generally felt perhaps somewhat stupid, or certainly uneducated in the final analysis, in the light of divine scripture, all things considered, except in certain cases, of course, subject to personal exercise, but certainly not available in Nebraska, may cause swelling of the vitreous humor, vomiting, and death. Another thing, William Kelly's sad, shameless, exhausting excesses regarding that pariah of punctuation, the ejaculative exclamation point, astounding, appalling, right in the very middle of sentences, alas. Oh, beloved, that we might learn a sad lesson from his wanton folly and properly abstain from such interminable purple lapses and authorial taste. Abysmal writing indeed, O brethren, a chore of which to e'en but contemplate the magnitude. Here is a fairly typical J.N. Darby sentence taken from a group email someone sent me today. The unity of the Church as the body of Christ, the coming of the Lord, the presence of the Holy Ghost here below, in the individual and in the Church, an assiduous proclamation of the truth as well as the preaching of the gospel on the ground of pure grace and that of an accomplished work, giving in consequence the assurance of salvation when received into the heart by the Spirit, practical separation from the world, devotedness to Christ, as to him who has redeemed the Church, a walk having him only as the motive and rule, and other subjects in connection with these, all this has been treated of in separate publications as well as by means of periodicals, and these truths have been largely spread abroad. That's seven commas, four semicolons, and a dash, all in the one sentence. Now, Dad wasn't a strong reader, and it was all he could do to make sense of these old books. They're not easy for anyone, as you can see. And Dad wasn't reading them so much because he wanted to know about the Bible, so much as because he had a job to do at Bible study. My father is, above all things, a worker. He needs a task, a mission, and apart from taking part in meeting, our local men didn't do a whole heck of a lot. It's not like they were out in the street preaching or feeding and clothing hungry people or anything, most of them. They were inside doing poor paraphrases of Paul. So my dad needed to serve those people at the Bible study by making sure something of substance, something Victorian, traditional, orthodox, and unassailable, was on offer. He wasn't just going to open the Bible and make up stuff or tell people what the verses made him think or feel. No, he felt that that sort of thing would have been self-indulgent and wasting of everyone's time, and that too many people were already doing that at our meetings. And I'm very sympathetic to that view. Dad begrudged every moment of Bible discussion that was taken up by sentimental imaginings, free association, and reminiscence. He thought the Bible should be about the present, how not to live, what not to believe, what we shouldn't feel, what we shouldn't do or say, what phrases in the Bible definitely did not mean. 
I think for him, it was the activity of serving that was filled with value, and not so much the old brethren books themselves. They were just awkward old tools he needed to use. Work was virtuous. It was an end unto itself. Were the books right? That was like asking Dad if his framing hammer or his crowbar were right. There was work that needed to be done. These were the tools he had. He was unfamiliar with any kinds of new tools that might have been out there and didn't trust the very idea of them having been made to begin with. Who needed a measuring tape with Wi-Fi, a night scope, and laser level on it? What was wrong with these old tools? He wasn't a strong reader, and he was getting through them after all. In retrospect, I suspect that my father was perhaps the only man there who was even moderately capable of reading those old books at all, certainly the only one who was consistently willing to do so. He felt he was surrounded by lazy people who were just going to tell stories and share what the various verses reminded them of, instead of talking about the verses themselves. So he tried to combat that, and he thought they focused too much on love and the positive. Empty, sentimental, feel-good crap. So he tried to balance that. This did not make him popular, or politically safe, it turned out. Once my father ran afoul of the political infighting and was silenced, having to sit mutely as any woman, child, or non-member, in disgrace while the other men discussed the Bible around him, he stopped reading those dusty old books entirely. He didn't even read his Bible as much. These men had taken away his reason for doing all of this hard reading, the task itself. If he wasn't allowed to work, he couldn't very well prepare for work, now could he? Anything that could be called work always seemed worthwhile to my dad. Hobbies were wasteful and self-indulgent. But work? Work needed to be done. He has recently gone to the lengths of buying that aforementioned llama, and then of course he has to buy the food, and build it a shelter, and feed and water it each day, so there is always llama-related work to be done nowadays. It adds meaning to his day. But he'll tell you that it is not a hobby. It's not for fun at all. No, it is work. It is necessary. That llama is not going to feed itself. Just as the ministry books mainly had worth if they helped the task at hand, the Bible was also not really seen as an end in itself. It was that tool for us to use in doing Christian work. Or it was a weapon. Quite often it was a weapon, now that I think about it. Many were bloodied therewith in my time among the gathered saints. Thing is, if a painting, or a song, or a dance is really good, it is only human to want to enjoy and share it. But in my culture, if it wasn't edifying, useful and instructive and keeping brethren people brethren then we were indulging ourselves and wasting the time God had given us purely to please those selves we weren't supposed to be being in our Christian lives. Pleasure was suspicious. Blind to good. To say that this attitude about pleasure has marked me from my formative years upward is a massive understatement. I am always embarrassed at time and money spent on anything I love if it isn't useful in some way. I have invested uncounted hours and dollars on joyful, trivial things anyway, but I always feel embarrassed. What is the use of the thing I just got? It makes me happy? That's not a real purpose, now is it? We were supposed to somehow derive happiness from abstaining from joy-giving things. And that never worked for me. Not unless it was a piety competition I thought I was winning. The prettiest Christian life in the whole piety pageant. That felt pretty awesome. I think I was right about a lot of things, but right for all the wrong reasons. 
I suspect I wasn't the only one like that either. A Pharisee. Being a Christian, competitively, praying to win. The first human being sinned in stealing the knowledge of good and evil. We brethren, however, didn't seem to know much about good, despite this. We certainly didn't have much to say about good in our interminable meetings, and we didn't seem to recognize it operating right around us. Good, worth, excellence, virtue, in and of itself, regardless of what use we might want to put a thing to, above and beyond our present agenda. Christians from other groups certainly were doing charity work in our town and preaching and so on, and it must be admitted that we were largely critical and skeptical. We didn't really ever join in as a group. Was that really the true gospel they were preaching? Why was it all worded in that hippy-dippy, unscriptural-sounding way? Why were people listening to them? Why did people go out to their church instead of where the Lord had gathered us? We were known to unthinkingly judge and criticize both the good things and the good people involved in them, stunningly blind to anything or anyone good, many of us. We existed primarily as pew-planted party poopers. We were always terribly interested in evil, though, as a group. We really loved to know what was wrong and carefully not do it and to make rules and point out who was doing that wrong stuff, which delight was, if you think of it, evil, non-good, double plus ungood even. It still goes on, outside brethren circles as well as in them. I see Christians everywhere spending a great deal of time gathering other people's negative, fearful impressions of Harry Potter and fully researched damnings of various movies and songs and warning everyone of the seductive, demon-bothering, hidden evil in them, all without examining the things themselves in any open-minded way, banning books they've never read, picketing films they've not seen, missing any good in said things entirely because they're so very busy judging errors and pointing out dangers. Dangers and errors which say more about the people judging them than about the work itself. Eventually nothing in the whole world is viewed as safe, and one can't see any worth in much of anything at all. Jesus, quoted in Matthew's Gospel, says in no uncertain terms that a person who has no virtue in his heart cannot recognize virtue when he encounters it. If his heart is full of evil, judgmental spite, with no mercy or openness or love or appreciation, that's all that can come out of his mouth, and that's all he will see all around him. All these censoring Kyle's mom efforts are all about God, aren't they? About making the world better? About helping children? And they're edifying, necessary, and worthwhile, aren't they? Virtue equals abstaining from pleasure? The Bible's full of stories of feasting and drinking and dancing. Some start out that way and then go wrong. Others end that way happily. Throughout the book, there's all sorts of this kind of thing. Pleasure being seen as good and natural, as from God. People getting married and spending days having sex and having kids and hanging out and building things and taking journeys together. Jesus' first miracle done before his serious ministry had really quite commenced and done almost prematurely was to use a divine miracle to ensure that guests at a wedding who drank all the wine ordered for the occasion did not have to stop drinking yet. Yet growing up, we had really funny attitudes to pleasure in general. For example, I was always taught that we should interpret any and all references to wine in the Bible as symbols of joy and celebration. And yet people who actually drank wine in terms of celebration in real life were seen as dubious, self-indulgent, unchristian people who didn't really listen to God. 
people who might partake in a brawl at any moment and then cheat on their wife with someone else's. Maybe play cards, too, or vote. A beer bottle found in the ditch in front of our place always had kind of a sinister aura to it. It was so alien, it might as well have dropped out of the sky. Because Christians didn't drink beer. It wasn't of God. Wine either, actually, except at church, and never hard liquor. We weren't, after all, Taylor Hale's brethren. All this always seemed odd to me on the few occasions when I actually thought about it. But of course, it felt entirely normal when I felt about it, because it was all I knew. Whatever you are used to is normal to you, and nothing else is. We were taught that God loved us, but our main experience of God was through dour old folks who didn't have any hobbies besides going to church and being ever vigilant as to us beloved young people. They were always warning us, quick with fear and caution and disapproval, teaching us to be full of care and anxiety about absolutely everything mostly anything that would hurt our church status or be a bad testimony, especially anything that might bring pleasure of any kind. And all this, too, seemed odd when I thought about it, but felt normal when I felt about it. Shelley says, This is how to kill a child from the inside out. Sometimes I do get angry about it. Now that I think about it, me too. The Catholics list seven deadly sins. You know, pleasure taken too far? We had oddly divided attitudes about each of those sins, too. And for every ten people who can name the seven deadly sins, how many people can name their counterparts the seven virtues? Try it. No one much knows what they are. Answer. The seven Catholic virtues are really nothing more than the capacity to simply not do the sins. Nothing positive, really. Just not doing the sins. Look it up. And many of us, Baptists, Pentecostals, Roman Catholics, and brethren were raised with the idea that virtue, good, is nothing more than simply avoiding doing bad. That's all it was felt we needed to be taught about good. Good was the absence of evil. To me, that sounds oddly like teaching children that if you want chocolate, what you need is a bucket of water. If you diligently remove each and every bit of grit and impurity in that bucket of water, eventually, of course, you will have a bucket of purest chocolate because you've removed every single thing that shouldn't be in chocolate from that bucket, every possible impurity. It just has to result in really, really pure chocolate, you see? And that's missing something. You can't make chocolate simply by removing everything that doesn't belong in chocolate from a bucket of water. And you can't make virtue by removing vice. You can't make people good by removing bad. I think there needs to be a term for this dysfunctional attitude and approach, and I'm not aware of one. I think I shall call it subtractive Christianity. Trying to do and be good just by removing what are seen as impurities, but not really adding anything of worth either. Our focus was on using our weekly meetings as what Dallas Willard calls sin management, like Alcoholics Anonymous. Spoilers. Being spiritual is being connected to and being fed by heaven, not just cutting oneself off from and not feeding upon things on earth. It's not even limited to feeding ourselves upon the Bible and Christian things. It's being freely given grace directly from God, stuff from heaven, on an ongoing basis. To do less is to slowly fall into chaos and watch our best Christian things fall apart and die. And that's what was happening to us and to our meeting. 
Thing is, even people not raised to be Christians grow up with these seven deadly sins in their cultural consciousness. When I teach creative writing courses, I teach kids that with children's shows especially, to give each individual smurf or elf or teenager or pony a personality, you just have to give each one a deadly sin. One is wrathful, one is greedy, one vain, one slothful, one a glutton, and one is some children's version of lustful. They do not each get a virtue. I think that's very telling. Families who did good things. There were some brethren families who I heard of doing charity work. There were some families who traveled to far countries to preach about the Bible. I know of a brethren man so characterized by charity work that he received a medal of recognition from the lieutenant governor of Nova Scotia. But that wasn't most of us. I can tell you now, though, that the people I speak to today who grew up in families who, in addition to judging all the alleged wickedness around them, also fed and clothed poor and hungry people, who didn't just sit in the church and preach in there, but took it to the streets and other countries, these people turned out in almost every case to be far healthier than the rest of us. But for the most part, our assemblies were places to hide from, rather than groups which made positive marks upon the communities in which they were found. Louisa writes, I have a close girlfriend, an atheist. She often asks me questions about religion, as she calls it. I hate that term. Last week she asked me, what does the meeting, she said, your church, do in the community? I said nothing. That was a big turnoff for her. Mary laughingly writes that at least the meeting hall had the prettiest yard on the block. I believe her meeting hall was in an industrial park, which may add some perspective to that statement. Melody writes, I am unaware of any difference made when I was a kid. I did invite a few friends to the Monday night kids thing where they would have heard the gospel, but I don't know if it impacted them at all. One friend did tell me later he thought it was incredibly boring. Darlene's father tried to save the souls of her teachers by giving them the gospel. She says, My father regularly felt it was his duty to tell my teachers that they were sinners and on their way to hell. It was done in a very offensive manner. The results were unkind behavior from the teachers towards me, which made my school year more difficult. Ruth agrees, saying, The only concrete difference I can think of that our church culture made in the surrounding community was that we gave them something amusing to speculate about. We were a culture that kept very much to ourselves, met in a brown meeting room with unpaved parking lot and no running water until the year 2000, and because of the air of mystery surrounding us, the local people liked to tell wild stories about our services, in which we sacrificed rabbits and chickens. Our meeting room was located next to a farm, and most of our members were farmers. We didn't contribute to helping the community around us. The most we did was open our doors for one week in the summer for gospel tent work, our version of Vacation Bible School. Back in the 80s, we got plenty of outside participation from neighborhood kids, but by the time I left, almost no one but gathered saints' kids were showing up to learn the memory verses and sing the action songs. But some families didn't merely try to evangelize. Some actually gave food and things to poor people. Some were a listening ear in time of trouble for their neighbors and co-workers. Some connected on a human level instead of from a Christian platform. And I think those people knew, shared, and enjoyed God in a way none of the rest of us did. The funny thing is, these kind souls 
weren't ever the ones running things. They weren't the ones being pointed to as examples. They weren't winning the piety pageant we had going on. They just did this stuff quietly, and no one much knew about it. They needed stuff from God to give to people, and God gave them that stuff. Final Thoughts on the Soil from Which I Sprang The good points about growing up in my brethren culture include knowing the words in the Bible, being fed and clothed and kept off the streets and safe from harm, having a structure that purported to put us on the path to being good people, being introduced to a lot of scriptural concepts. But as I have laid out in fairly acerbic terms here, I think we were proud and close-heartedly competitively pious, especially for what should have been a loving, safe environment in which children were growing up knowing Jesus. I think we couldn't deliver, practically, spiritually, on our claims. The spiritual ones, the socio-cultural ones, the community ones, the human relationship ones. I think we failed at being loving. I think we weren't honest about being a church like any other, prey to all the usual stuff. I think we raised children to simply not deal with Christians from other churches, and not be able to move freely among the people and activities of other churches, though we taught that we were one with those people. I think we weren't up front about the fact that we were a human system, with certain guys holding actual power over membership and liberty, a system with very definite rules, and a hotly competitive status game going on. I think that we knew more about what we saw as vice, pleasure, partying, and fun, than we did about virtue, and I think we left some very obvious ecclesiastical sin wholly unjudged among us. I think the most important thing of all is that we didn't know how to treat each other properly, didn't know how to love our own folks. I think our culture encouraged shutdown, closed-in, exclusive people. I think it fostered crippling levels of guilt and awkward shame in many of us. And I think all that really matters. I think the well from which I drank was poisoned. I think it got me to the dark state where I ended up in my teens. I think there was as much a problem of good stuff missing as there were any bragging rights about bad stuff being kept at bay. Were we kept safe by this careful isolationism? In some ways, certainly, from some things. But there was danger there. And I think Jesus Christ chose to save me from it. He started by waking me up.